Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Sorry about that, Justin. Do you have a cold? Yeah, I, I do. I might, might have a little bit of a, a demon cough, if you know how that goes. It's rough. How are things going in Vancouver? All of the Occupy Vancouverites down at the main square at the art gallery are headed towards a face-off with the mayor and municipal government as people are starting to put pressure on everyone who's in the city government, including the mayor, into clearing out the square and removing the protesters. So interesting times ahead. How about you, Seth? I just had a birthday. I'm now 27 years young or old, as everyone keeps reminding me how old I am. Had three birthday cakes in the span of like four days. Three birthday cakes? Can you imagine three birthday cakes? I am feeling so large and in charge these days, very much like the American that I am. But (laughs) I've had a, a vanilla cake that is vegan with no eggs or butter or milk, no cow milk. Uh, I've had a carrot cake with cream cheese icing, and I've had a pound cake, which was extremely tasty, and that were very crunchy outside crust. And that might not be as cool as going to fight against the mayor in uh, downtown Vancouver, but it was still exciting for me. It still sounds delicious. So oh, Extremely delicious. Yeah, almost as delicious as a fight against a mayor. Yes, but not as bloody or exciting. Today is a very special Halloween edition of the Extra Environmentalist podcast. We're talking about the scariest of all topics. The belief systems that we have with Steve Vault, the author of Fringeology, a book that takes a very balanced and journalistic approach to the believer-skeptic debate around paranormal topics like psi, remote viewing, ghosts, UFO contactees, all of these really fringe topics. And uh, what Steve Volk does, like no other book that I've read before, is go in and really take a balanced approach saying, you know, there may be something to this. Let's talk to these people. Let's do some research here. And yeah, he discovers some crazy people. But he also... (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah, he did. But he also found a lot of really interesting things that we're going to talk about here today. But more than anything else, we talk about how the belief systems that we have prevent us from encountering information that may cause us 
to have a fight or flight response as a human being. And that's a really interesting component of our conversation. That's true, Justin. There's a lot about fringology that resonates with the co- the topics that we talk about on this show. There's a lot of things that people don't really understand about economics that we kind of divulge and kind of go into a lot on, on the extra environmentalist. And the kind of uh, culture wearing as a hat kind of thing are the, the topics that are very, very tough to talk about in polite conversation lend themselves well to this kind of topic of fringology and talking about things that you don't normally talk about when you're sitting down for a cup of tea with your mother. Or grandmother. Or your grandmother, yeah. Unless your grandmother is a UFO hunter or ecological economist. This episode is full of scary things like, uh, you know, flash mobs in Philadelphia and uh, talking to UFO believers and even Steve Volk's family ghost story. So yes, we have an action-packed episode, so let's jump right in. You're a city reporter in Philadelphia focused on education, police, crime, politics, and a reporter for Philadelphia Magazine. Thanks for joining us to talk about your book, Fringology. So First of all, you're located in Philly, right? You bet. How are things there? I actually think that Philadelphia feels probably a lot like the nation does. We had a mayor, Michael Nutter, sweep into election in 08, who really on a local level, was he as transcendent as Obama seemed? Not quite. He was running for mayor. Um, and so the topics he was addressing were not necessarily, you know, as lofty and as grand. Were we fired up and like super hopeful about this guy? You know, yeah. And I think that Philadelphia feels a little bit just frustrated. We expected to have done better in the last couple of years than we have as a city. And, and it feels like we've had a lot of turmoil here. There was a huge controversy over the school district uh, CEO, one of those star CEOs that big cities hire and, and she didn't work out. And there was a lot of uh, anxiety over that. And we had these things that people are calling flash mobs around here where young kids from poor neighborhoods came into town and beat people up. Wow. So, it's been a really, it's been kind of a rocky road, I think, for Philadelphia over the last several months. I thought flash mobs were those ones where they dance and do fun Michael Jackson impressions. No, that's not how we do flash mobs in Philly, son. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and have you done any reporting on, on flash mobs, on, on what's uh, kind of the dynamic there? I'm poking around here and there. I'm I'm actually a little skeptical. I mean, I, I don't really think that they can can be suitably called flash mobs. I mean, there were a couple of them where enough kids showed up at, at one spot that you could you could maybe say that, but those actually weren't as violent as some of the incidents where it was more like 15 or 20 kids, you know, came in in a swarm. And it seems to me that in those cases, you know, you're not talking about something that was product of social media where people are showing up the way they do for a traditional flash mob to have a good time and to carry out maybe some sort of theater, you know, street theater, a dance or whatever it might be. I think these are kids who knew each other already and decided to come into the city and, you know, in the center city and, and make trouble. And, you know, that just becomes so ugly because you're talking about a city with millions of people in it. And now, you know, a small group of knuckleheads starts to sort of define it. And that's always sad as well. You know, the vast majority of people here and the vast majority of kids here aren't, aren't going into Center City and, and beating people up. 
Now, do you think these flash mobs are in re- direct result of the economy kind of going bad and people not having the uh, the same kind of uh, opportunities as they used to have, or is this something that's just different? Uh, yeah, you know, these kids are so young that they never had op- any opportunity really to begin with, or, or were out in the workforce. But I, I do think that it seems you know the, the kids themselves never uh, orate afterward on why it is that they decided to smack a fifty nine year old man upside the head, you know, and pound him down. My guess is that there is just this unbelievable anger. I mean, these are kids from neighborhoods that have had three generations essentially lost, you know, because the factory started shutting down in Philly and nothing ever replaced them. And, you know, and that's where the open air drug dealing started in the city and, you know, has taken hold. And and I just think that the amount of anger that those kids probably have that they don't even understand they have or why they have it is behind this in some way. So that is a strange segue into the main topic we're going to talk about (laughs) today, but we're getting there. Your book Fringeology is on a lot of the topics that are on the fringe of mainstream science and and addresses a paranormal. And so that's uh, why we wanted to talk to you today. And in speaking about anger, you wrote quite a bit about it in the book. Why do you think people are uncomfortable with, with saying that they don't know when it comes to a topic like this? And how can we even rationally discuss something if if we're going to be prone to anger when facing this uncertainty? Well, I think that we've tended to ghettoize these topics, right? So in in the book, whether I'm writing about ghosts or UFOs or psychic phenomenon or whatever it might be, these topics have been marginalized. And yet the paradox here is that they're super important fundamental questions, so we talk about ghosts from UFOs and we're, we're, we're talking about issues related to life after death, whether or not we're alone in the universe, what it means to, to really be human. And those issues are so loaded and so important to people. There's a lot of anxiety associated with admitting that we don't know the answers to these very fundamental questions about what it means to be us. I had to confront that in myself in order to to write the book. How do people form their worldviews? We talk a lot about on the show about people trying to open their minds up to large, big ideas. And how do we respond to the information that comes in that conflicts with these worldviews? We have all these images from the media that that tell us how our, our world is changing. And, you know, there's a lot of, of the narrative that kind of tells us exactly how we're supposed to think, but then you have a, a burr or something that comes along and just blows it wide open. What's the mental state like when the brain is forming these narratives and what happens when it conflicts? You know, the fact is we're really building our worldviews all the time from the time we're kids. And one of the concepts that's lurking at the back of the book and that and it starts to get sort of dragged out in the light of day as it goes on is, is neuroplasticity. So when you have a thought, certain neural connections are made in the brain. And it can be safely said that the more often you have that thought or repeat that action, the stronger those connections become. You know, if you're dealing with somebody who is either maintaining or you know, defending some strongly held religious beliefs. You're talking about someone here who maybe they practice uh, prayer uh, every day uh, or at least weekly. And so they have a, a very strong set of connections in the brain. The brain of a believer actually comes to look different than the brain of somebody who disbelieves. And when you tell someone something that conflicts with their worldview, their immediate reaction, and it's an automatic response to the brain, is, well, no, that you know that, that can't be. There's a fear reaction in the amygdala. And it's this primitive structure in our brain that's been there from the beginning. And people refer to it as sort of the lizard part of the brain. And it's there to tell us when we're 
they're in danger. And, you know, when you think about it, it used to be that as a species, we were, you know, in danger all the time you know, from what is that shadow in the grass? Is it a predator that could threaten me? If you think of this, you know, sort of in evolutionary terms. Well, now the amygdala is still there and it's still firing off over threats to our worldview. And we can really react to those sorts of threats almost as dramatically as we do uh, threats to our lives. And, you know, I use the example of a, a believer, but I think that it, it goes for, for people who disbelieve as well. If you don't believe in God, you come to self-identify with a statement, there is no God. And if somebody says to you that there is your amygdala is going to light up. And you're going to feel very threatened, aren't you? And Yeah, I mean, it depends on how probably evolved as a person you are and how in tune you are with your own feelings and the sensations they provoke. But I mean, think about it. The palms could sweat, the muscles get taut, jaw clenches, all those sorts of automatic reactions uh, associated with, say, the, the early stages of, of a fight-or-flight response can kick in. And I was really happy when you guys reached out to me because one of the things that I kept bumping into as I was writing the book was this thought in my head that, you know, I'd hate it if this book is ultimately only appreciated by people who aren't are normally reading about the paranormal because there, for me, there was a lot in fringology that can be extrapolated out to other areas of our lives, to politics, to the way we interact all the time with one another. And one of the things the book did for me is made me very aware of my automatic reactions and gave me a little bit of distance from them, at least when I'm on my game, you know, so that I can feel that momentary flash of fear when someone says something that, frankly, I don't want to hear because I disagree with it and let that pass and move on to another more fruitful and helpful reaction. How does the belief in religion compare to dealing uh -oh. with paranormal topics? And do you think it's possible to live in between two possibilities? That's another uh, sort of system of thought I engaged with in writing the book was, um, I don't know if you are familiar at all with David Eagleman, who coined this school uh, philosophy, which I think it's a, you know, it's a little pretentious. He hasn't thought it out to that degree yet to call it its own philosophy, but it's a really interesting idea called possibilianism. And it is keeping yourself in that state where you are open to various possibilities, to where, where you do exist sort of between all the different dogmas that are on offer to us all the time. Look, I mean, I, I've certainly met people along the way who maintain some sort of fundamental religious belief and yet are uh, profoundly interested in the in the paranormal. When I went to Stephenville, Texas and explored um, a little cow town, Texas, and I explored a UFO sighting they had there, I met a lot of people who were very fundamentalist Christian, but very, very open to the idea that their uh, little town had been visited by, you know, extraterrestrials. So certainly it's, it's possible and I would encourage people to do it, uh, you know, not necessarily that belief if that's not one that floats your boat, but I, I think that the ability to remember that we hold beliefs generally, you know, we don't know. You know, you look at the economic crisis and the way we've handled that, we've been guessing. You know, we don't even know how the economy is going to react. And yet there are people out, you know, to, to whether or not we lower or raise the interest rates and all this sort of stuff. We don't even know that. And, and yet we have people who are trying to convince us that either there is a God or there is no God and that we should hold one belief or the other as firmly as they do. I just think that we need to keep our powder dry a little bit and be open to you know, the various possible answers to these questions.
when you're talking to someone who's talking about their UFO sighting and getting the experience of speaking with someone who had that very important or whatever you could call it experience in their life, um, did that change the way that you view maybe statements that come from people like politicians? Because you could look at what a UFO experiencer might say and say that it's absurd, but there's a lot of equally absurd statements that are coming from the left and the right these days. And like you were mentioning, the economic crisis. And, and do you think that when politicians make these kinds of statements that they really believe what they're saying? I think the thing that really struck me when I started interviewing the witnesses in Stephenville is how credible they are. And they said crazy things in a way that made you certain they are not crazy, if that makes sense. They really believe they saw what they saw. Uh, I actually believe they did see something unexplained. Now, whether or not that makes it ET is a different question. But it, the experience of writing the book gave me a lot of respect for the people who report these things. Overall, I identify them really in the book as uh, a sort of a subclass called embarrassed Americans, because these are people who, once they've outed themselves and said they saw something in the sky, for instance, that they can't explain, people immediately sort of equate that with the cliched hick drinking moonshine in the backyard who, you know, has a um, alcohol-induced vision. And so they had to put up with with that kind of nonsense and that kind of stigma to sort of be heard at all. So that's just one one piece of it. When it comes to politicians, I mean, it's fascinating to look at this in terms of whether or not they, they really do believe it. Because I, I, I do think that they very often, I mean, politics just drives people to say things they don't mean. I, I don't think for an instant, you know, that John Kerry ever wanted to vote to authorize the Iraq war, you know, politically boxed into it. And I think that when you look at the field of candidates that's out there right now, it's really interesting to think, well, who's, who's sort of reacting? Where can you see actual emotion in what somebody has to say? And where do they see like they're just sort of saying a kind of a company line, what they believe they should say? So for instance, someone like Mitt Romney, I kind of trust the Tea Party's gut, right? Mitt Romney is saying what he thinks he needs to say in order to get elected. And that's sort of who Mitt Romney has become all the time. He's trying to be the most agreeable guy in the room. But when you listen to somebody like Herman Cain, one thing you know with him is that his amygdala is very active and he's right. reacting to it. And at least you, you're, you know, you're really getting a sense of you know, his authentic beliefs. So I do find myself thinking in those terms sometimes. And then you have somebody like Obama, and I'll go back to my what made me want to vote for him in the first place. I think that he has a little more enlightened approach. And I don't think he's always reacting you know, from, his, from any sort of dogmatically held belief that he's defending. So politics, even economics, the afterlife, even what our spouses are thinking, so many parts of our lives are assumptions and just guesses on faith or stories. Mm -hmm. Why do people have such a hard time believing in this sort of fringe thoughts that you bring out? And then take that step further. What, what is the role of faith in a society that believes in so many of these guesses and, and things that they take on faith? What is the role of faith? There's just so much stigma associated with this stuff. I withheld this sort of family ghost story for years, thought it was probably a bad idea to write about it because, you know, we're not we're not supposed to talk about this stuff. And me in particular in my profession to to tell this story and not sort of blow it out of the water with some kind of well-honed skeptical explanation is just sort of unacceptable in the more, um, you know, academic parts of our society. 
right? In the more, generally speaking, like, you know, intellectual parts of our society. And as a reporter, I need to be able to move really in every part of society. So I think that people stay away from these topics because they feel they're going to get some sort of taint on them by association. And, you know, that's why I coined that phrase in the book too, the, the paranormal taint. I think that once people um, get a whiff of that, people around you sort of back up a few steps and try and ascertain again what you know where is this guy coming from is he crazy and i and i think it's from just years of media portrayals that made people look silly if they had a story like this to tell you know i'll tell you what as a reporter when i did tell people that i was doing this i started getting all the time when i call the uh, you know the second head look where people who've known me for years and know me for drug re- reporting on drugs and crime and you know all these sorts of hardcore city issues in Philadelphia would literally take a step back and look at me like I just sprouted a second head. And they would automatically just kind of like look me up and down because they had to reassess me completely. Now, thankfully, since the book has come out, you know, that's all <laughs> that's all gone away. <laughs> um, I, 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 it seems I get to stay in the club. You know, but that's the the fear I think people have of of announcing their interest in this or or getting too close to it. And I have to tell you, as far as the role of faith, I became very convinced as I went through this that belief isn't bad, that belief is natural and belief is good for us. And we need to remember that we don't know, you know, and to me, if somebody holds a, a belief like my brother is a very believing Christian, but over the years, and, and actually I think a little bit through the experience of my writing this book and the conversations we've had, he's become more and more able to step into that possibility space we were talking about earlier where, okay, this is what I believe, but right now I'm going to set that aside and really look at what I'm hearing and really think about what the possibilities are. And it's in many ways, he's actually revised some of his beliefs. He remains a Christian, but he's revised some of his beliefs over the years. And so I think that that's the most reasonable thing that we can ask of people. And I'll tell you truthfully, too, the most humane thing. I mean, one of the things that's made me really uh, frustrated with the new atheist movement is this sort of tone that, you know, there's something wrong with believers and they need to quit believing. In many respects, we're built to believe People find tremendous amounts of peace for themselves, and it's a peace that's actually now even measurable. I mean, I get into this a lot in the book, too. I mean, you look at fMRI scans of people who are regular meditators, who, who regularly pr- practice contemplative prayer, and their brains are simply um, more peaceful than people who don't do these things. Their amygdala is less active. They're actually better able to focus on um, a task. It's it's really beautiful. And to think that we should throw this out entirely or to expect that people would just sort of tear off this belief system that has helped them and provided them with so much peace over the years is just ridiculous. I mean, it's stupid to expect that people are going to do that. Some people are capable of doing that, I suppose, but on mass, it's it's simply not going to happen. I think that the most reasonable thing to ask people to do, and I would ask the new atheists to do it as well, is to find, you know, equate uh, or identify with the statement, I believe there is no God. And those of you who believe, identify with the statement, I believe there is a God. Remember, it's a belief. And that's the next step we need to take. Remember that it's a belief and be willing to step into that possibility space where you really consider how strange the world might be and consider all the questions to which we don't yet have answers.
Absolutely. And we talk about a lot of economic issues on our show. And we interviewed a writer named John Michael Greer, and he's written quite a few books on alternative economic approaches. And he's one of the most rational thinkers about the economy that we found. But he's a druid and he's a practicing oh, really? druid. Yeah. And cool. so I'm at the University of British Columbia and uh, we talk about various issues like this in our classes here. And whenever we bring up John Michael Greer, kind of that little snicker in the room, like, wow, what he's writing is incredible. But he's a druid. And so then for some reason that discredits his unbelievable logical approach, right? I think though it's something different <laughs> because we talk about someone like John Michael Greer who is who is believes in a very fringe religion. And we, you talk to like a, a someone who is, has less intelligence, say, than, than John Michael Greer. And you talk, you start bringing up items that are, you know, sensitive, like religion or the supernatural. And you kind of run into this I believe wall, I like to call it. Like something like you're talking, 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 and then they say, well, I believe that. You know, you talk when you're talking to very devout Christians or, you know, religious people that, that often comes up and, they, and the reasoning part of the brain just shuts off and there's no more rational conversation. Just the emotional wall that kind of just comes down and says, well, this is what I believe and you're not going to touch it. I'm sure you run into these kind of blinders all the time with, with your topic area as well. Yeah, I do. And, and I think that to me, what's been a really sort of fruitful way to keep a discussion going is to just react to that with curiosity on, on my part. So, you know, well, why do you believe that? And hear them out. Sometimes you get some really interesting responses and you, and, and you end up getting to take this <laughs> take this into the wilder realms of the book, right? You, you sometimes end up getting responses from people that, that demonstrate for a lot of believers, it's not about the Bible. It's about some personal experience they had or collection of experiences along the way. That gives me a lot of respect for people sometimes that, it, that at least there's something there besides somebody handed you a book and said, look, this is all true. Are you ready for bed and sleep? All little girls and boys must sleep. When they play all day, they need rest. Do you know what rest means? Let me show you. With Halloween coming up soon, do you have something scary you can tell us, Richard Heinberg? I can't think of anything more terrifying than, than the last few years. You know, st basically starting with uh, uh, Dick Cheney and the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and then the, the financial meltdown of 2008. I think we're living in a horror story right now. Uh, and the sooner we that that nightmare ends, the better. And I, I think that's that's what the the Occupy movement is is really trying to do. It's 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 end the nightmare. Help us wake up to a uh, a different reality. Dick Cheney is a pretty scary guy. <laughs> yeah. Bernard Leterre and Gwendolyn Hallsmith, do you have something scary that you can tell us about? Who was that guy that said when he died he wanted to come back to the financial market? But there is a joke about James, James Carver, Carville, who was the uh, campaign director of Bill Clinton in 92, made the following comment. He said that if there is reincarnation, I always wanted to come back as the president or as the pope. Now, I want to come back as the financial system because you can scare anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I think the scariest thing about our monetary system is its propensity to crash. I did a lot of work in Central and Eastern Europe in the former Soviet Union when they were experiencing their currency crises over there, and I've seen the devastating effects that monetary crashes can have on people, especially the elderly who are living on fixed incomes. It's really important to look at new ways to do things so that we protect the people that are the most valuable in our lives. So Conrad Schmidt, what is something that really scares you? 
Well, the biggest scary thing, of course, is the acidification of the oceans. I mean, that 50% of the phytoplankton are gone over the last 40 years. I can't imagine anything more scary than that. Phytoplankton, it's one of the basic building blocks of all life, and we lost 50% of it. Even if we lost 5% of it, that would be extremely scary. But 50%? That makes Count Dracula look like uh, Mother Teresa on a smiley day. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist with Steve Volk, reporter for the Philadelphia Magazine and author of the book, Fringeology. And so what do you think is the role of, of education in kind of producing these responses? I mean, you cover a lot of really fascinating scientific studies and evidence of things like remote viewing, how one of the guys in the military, they showed him a hangar and told him, you know, draw what's in the hangar. And he drew a tank. And they were thinking like, oh, it's a hangar. He's going to draw an airplane. But he drew a tank because there's actually a tank in the hangar. And he was using yeah. remote viewing to do it. And he actually apparently out. drew the interior of the tank as well. Right. I mean, yeah. that's that just defies all probability. It's unbelievable. But I wanted to play this clip here to, to cue up talking about education. The first day of my Eastern philosophy course, the instructor walks out and goes, uh, God is consciousness, and we are all God trying to realize our full potential. Wow. <laughs> This guy in the back row goes, yeah, we gonna need to know that. <laughs> they gonna be on a quiz. And that, that was Bill Hicks? Hicks. Yeah, that yeah, was Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks yeah. yeah, that's great. So what do you think the role of education is in producing this response to the paranormal or even just limiting our ability to deal with it? Boy, that's a big question. It, it's a big one. I was listening to recently a parapsychologist who dabbles in this stuff who says that, you know, when paranormalists, when people who really believe are sort of devoutly arguing for, you know, the evidence that they've gathered, there seems to be this sense that like, well, somehow, you know, we should be doing more with this than we are, right? And the, the question then becomes, well, what would that more be? You know, there isn't an experiment as yet that would be engaging enough for the students and that could happen within the sort of semester cycle of what they're up to in a given college that would always yield the kind of um, evocative results you'd need to see psi as, as possible or telepathy as, as possible. And so I guess what I'm driving at here is I certainly wouldn't advocate that we start teaching lots of courses on the history of mental telepathy with a goal of getting people to, to believe that it is so. I do think, however, that within the disciplines of science, these topics need to be less stigmatized so that people who might go out and do research on these things don't feel as if they will be giving up their tenure tracks if they reveal it too soon. So I, I think that, that at higher levels of education, I uh, would love it if um, these topics were taught in a, in a really sort of open-minded and adventurous sort of way. But I think at the lower levels of education, the culture, I think, is sort of raising people to keep these things in mind, you know? And so there's, there's sort of, I think, an appropriate kind of interplay between skepticism and belief, you know, in, in the culture as you're growing up. And where the rubber really meets the road is, is once we get to circles of higher education, where suddenly, you know, I realized that the people around me, most of them reacted hostily 
to um, any idea of a ghost. And here I was like, you know, a guy with this with this story in my background. If perhaps there was a way of creating a different environment there where people maintained a, a more open mind, that would be worthwhile. And yet there's a lot of evidence of inventions and discoveries that have been made in altered states and through, uh, you know, inventions uh, that came through dreams and things. Uh, have you ever had a lucid dream? And you wrote in the book about attending a lucid dreaming workshop in Hawaii. What did you learn? Wow. The lucid dreaming stuff was hugely powerful for me. Just really stood me on my head in the best way possible. Because I'd kind of equated that stuff with, just to be dead honest with you, you know, sort of hippie think. Lucid dreaming is the act of being aware you're dreaming while you're dreaming. And then reacting to that, you know, carrying that knowledge along with you. A lot of people will have a, uh, a nightmare and wake themselves up out of it because they were very, in, in, in that case, man, you're very close to having had a lucid dream. You just, you didn't really recognize what it means to be dreaming because if you're dreaming, you know, the nightmare isn't real. Um, right. You realize that the things that are happening in your brain, you know, have no external reality. And if the boogeyman's chasing you, you might as well just sort of tweak his nose. Uh, or talk to him, see what he's chasing you for. So for me, lucid dreaming kind of opened me up to this realm where I could have a lot more um, dramatic, fantastic kinds of experiences on a somewhat regular, repeatable basis. And the practice of it contributed to my experience of daily life because the way you train the lucid dream involves meditation, uh, which is just really healthy for your brain and makes you just sort of more aware of your surroundings all the time because you're constantly training yourself to ask, well, am I awake or am I dreaming? And in order to do that, you have to be very aware aware of your surroundings. And so it really got, lucid dreaming got me living in the moment and feeling like I was accessing a level of myself and a level of experience that's always been sort of there waiting for me and that I wasn't taking advantage of. You got to figure you spend six to eight hours a night, most people uh, sleeping. We have dreams throughout the night. Why not make use of that time? You know, it, it was really fascinating how you wrote about the professor who discovered lucid dreaming. What were the details? Something about like the eyes moving back and forth. Yeah. So here's a great story to understand how science works and doesn't work. Lucid dreaming has been known by uh, Tibetan Buddhists and the Aborigine for centuries and practiced regularly. But here in the West, lucid dreaming, you know, was thought not to exist because the idea of being aware while you're dreaming, you know, suggests being conscious when you're unconscious. And well, that's just impossible. So we don't even have to think about this. Let's move on. So Stephen LeBurge is uh, an American. He's a kid. He grows up, some kids do this, spontaneously having lucid dreams all the time. And he doesn't have much use for traditional religion. In fact, he, at that point in his life, is like a sort of an adolescent heading into college, thought of it as uh, stupid. But he knows that lucid dreams ex exist. And then he gets into college and he starts realizing that when he's looking into sleep research, that supposedly lucid dreaming is unproven. Well, huh, here's, you know, here's a puzzle for him to figure out. And so, you know, how can he prove this? And so ultimately he goes for his doctorate at Stanford. He's working under a, a professor named William DeMent. And he finds out about an experiment that DeMent had done in which he was, uh, you know, working in the sleep lab. And he noticed that at one point during uh, REM, instead of the sort of herky-jerky kinds of eye movements that are normally associated with REM sleep, where the eyes really just kind of dart all around really fast, suddenly the eyes adopted these really 
really smooth, controlled movements. And so DeMent had asked the study subject, woke him up as soon as it was over because he wanted to know, you know, do you remember what you were dreaming? And the person said, I was watching a ping pong match. So startling, right? Suddenly it seems that your physical movements, your eye movements, even in REM, can suddenly go completely in sync and in tune with whatever your dream content is. Now, for Stephen LaBerge, this was the foothold he needed, the clue he needed. And so he started designing a whole research protocol around moving his eyes at some point once he gained lucidity. And ultimately, he succeeded in it, and he started sending the the research out, and the mainstream journals that he wanted to, you know, he first sent it to, rejected it. And the kinds of comments he was getting back in, in peer review, you know, were things like, well, couldn't find anything wrong with this study, but there has to be something wrong with this study. So in other words, it can't be true because I just can't believe it. You know, these were his peers, really the people above him at this point, carrying out the peer review process. And so he ended up getting it published in a relatively obscure journal called the Journal of Perceptual and Motor Skills. And uh, and lucid dreaming has never really caught on here in America. I mean, you have to wonder, the movie Inception is ultimately all about lucid dreaming. And it's about being able to do it, you know, through these gizmos and do it automatically inhabit other people's dreams. But, you know, they never mention the words lucid dreaming in the movie. The only thing I can figure is that lucid dreaming is so associated with Eastern philosophy that they just felt that that would, and I could be overthinking it. I mean, it could be that it just didn't end up in the script, right? But I I think that for us in the West, a lot of times we look askance at, at things that developed in the East and that come from the East. And I think we still have that problem. So we've been talking a lot about dreams and inputs from these kind of dreams and from media and other individuals. They go a long way to making what is real for us. You change what the media says to you, changes your entire reality. What kind of roles do these these outside sources, like say the media, play in constructing the realities we live in? If you think of it purely in political terms, the media keeps feeding us this kind of horse race narrative where politics are concerned all the time. How often do you see coverage where the sum and substance really seems to be about how we're going to get America moving again? And how often is it about the gamesmanship that's going on to give one party political advantage over the other? So I think that the media by constantly, and and I got to tell you, man, I hesitate. As a member of the media, I hesitate. To, to criticize the rest of the media because, you know, I ain't perfect either. But the way the national media handles political coverage and therefore, you know, economic coverage and coverage of the wars and coverage is absolutely reprehensible because it isn't issue based. It's winner and loser based. And that's the narrative we're fed constantly in my mind. You know, who's up? Who's down? How does what this guy said uh, impact his political chances? Not will this help help us get jobs? You know, help us reduce the unemployment rate. And so, to to that extent, you know, if you're living inside this, as we all are, it's very hard not to get pulled into that. As a guy who has been uh, a lifelong Democrat, it's hard. It takes effort not to just start to think in terms of, well, you know, even though I'm disappointed in Obama, I just want him to win no matter what, just to keep those other guys out. Instead of maybe, let's say if I was a political activist, which is something you really can't do when you're a reporter, uh, instead of, say, pressing him to be more progressive. You follow? 
Right. Yeah. Start to root for the D in front of the name or the R in front of the name as opposed to what the person is actually doing. Right. Yeah. So what do you what do you think if we injected the American dream with the lucid dream? How how would that look? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know how to begin to answer that question. But I'll tell you what I I will use I, I I will use that for a second to say like I have never thought of applying it in that sphere, but it's it's not so illogical, right? The the fact is that in the lucid dream space, it's really it's your head, right? It's like a virtual reality machine inside your head. You can experience it in a way, not as evocatively, just by closing your eyes and imagining things, right? And so, for instance, if you watch the Olympics and you see a skier getting ready for the next downhill run, and this happened a lot during the last Olympics, I'd be watching one skier get interviewed in the foreground, and I would notice in the background, particularly with what I was researching, the other skiers can be standing there with their eyes closed, twitching and shifting like they were on a slalom, you know, on the slalom course, even though they weren't. Well, they were using that space inside their heads to continue to train themselves and to prepare themselves for that all important run, you know, that they were about to make down the hill. And so I do think that's not a lucid dream thing. That's a waking thing. In lucid dreams, you can do that. I mean, gosh, guys, like I got rid of a a recurring nightmare I had for years. I dealt with a uh, phobia that had uh, plagued me for years. I've had a great ride through lucid dreaming. It's tremendously useful to stop, right, whether you're awake or whether or not you're training to have a lucid dream. Think about some sensitive conversation you're going to be having soon and play it out. Game it out. What will I say? What might they say in return? When that sort of thing's going good, that you might even find that the person you're imagining begins to behave uh, almost in a spontaneous fashion, you know, like a real person would. And you can train for the important moments in your lives in this way. And so what would that mean, right, if we somehow applied that to our politics? Well, I don't know. It is worth considering. It would put those in the minds of some of our, you know, political people right now, like a, you know, Mitt Romney or something like that. It might be a very, very strange world indeed. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, it, it, you know, and sort of Machiavellian, I imagine it, you know, yeah. like a guy who's just sort of reading all the angles at all times. So do you think that there uh, is some creativity to some of our civilization's problems uh, in exploring all these phenomena? It, like the example you used in the book was with oracle bones and the Chinese dynasties that use these oracle bone approaches to predict the future, I think it was, and, and do yeah. fortune telling. But really what they were doing is using all of these different alignments to uh, give their mind kind of a, a point to jump off of yeah. and extrapolate creative solutions. Yeah. So, well, yeah. look, I think it's imp- Reagan at one point during the Cold War made a statement about if if another civilization was discovered, uh, you know, tomorrow, or if an alien race came to visit the Earth. I forget how it was phrased. We would all look at each other differently. So it's to, to me, it's very much worth thinking about things in those terms. I mean, what would you know an alien civilization think if they came to Earth, and how would we react to that? How important would the borders between the U.S. and Mexico and uh, the illegal illegal immigration controversy? How important would that look if a couple of really big spaceships parked themselves over Texas tomorrow? It'd look very, very scary. <laughs> a lot of people would be. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I'm just uh, so I I think that there are uh, creative solutions potentially available to us through being willing to consider these these 
these thoughts that won't go away anyway. You know what I mean? I'm sorry, I got caught up in a reverie there for a second because like, you know, we, we spend a lot of time resisting these things, whether it's ghosts or thoughts of the afterlife or UFOs. But, you know, the fact is they, they aren't going anywhere. You know, these ideas are with us as a, as a sort of a species. And so we might as well make some use of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, we might as well use them to our benefit, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was working in the lab late one night. My eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise... So, John Michael Greer, do you have a scary story you could share with us? I've been involved in a variety of fraternal lodges. And it so happens that back when I lived in Seattle, one of the one of the old lodge members said once, don't be surprised if you hear something from upstairs. I was going, what? Are there like rats in the wall? No, 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 just don't be surprised. So we were down at this lodge meeting in the downstairs hall one night, fairly late, and there were footsteps upstairs crossing the lodge hall. And I think a couple of us just jumped out going, wow, oh boy, has somebody gotten, gotten in there? And so we went and checked the doors. You could check the doors from downstairs and everything was locked. And there were still footsteps going back and forth and we were just watching this and suddenly realized that what was happening, what we were hearing were the footsteps you would hear if somebody was going through the ritual of opening a lodge upstairs. But the lights were off and there was nobody upstairs. So the best that we were ever able to figure is that some of the old lodge members who had died a long time ago were still coming there to hold their meetings when nobody else was around. That's my story. So, Seth, what's one of the scariest things you can think of? Well, I've had this reoccurring dream where elephants break down the wall of my house and walk all over me while I'm still in my bed. And on top of the elephant is this crazy man with a headdress and and spears that just stick out of his body and then he jumps off of off of the elephant and he does this crazy dance and then he takes off all my covers and runs away and i'm so cold and it's really scary that does sound pretty terrifying yeah that's pretty bad what if a government came to power that made you shave your hair and your beard da, da, da. <laughs> are you one of the frightened Do you whistle past the graveyard? Well, then perhaps you're really like the rest of us. So come with me. Just a short ride through the hills past the old burial grounds where Count Alexis met the lady in the long, flowing veil. You're listening to the extra-environmentalist Steve Mock, reporter for the Philadelphia magazine and author of the book, Freeology. And the book, you addressed the story of Edgar Mitchell and the overview uh, effect of space travel. Perhaps you can explain this a little bit to us. Okay, so the overview effect is what happens really to every astronaut, you know, male, female, whatever nationality, when they get out into space and they get a chance to see the Earth from that vantage point. It's the kind of paradigm-shifting site that I was referencing just a minute ago with, with the Reagan thing. You know, what if, what if aliens came here tomorrow? How would the Cold War look then? It would look awfully silly. They'd be allies. From space, when you see the Earth and you see how fragile uh, and thin that band of, uh, you know, the atmosphere is, and th- the lines between nations seem completely arbitrary, and, and it just explodes 
people's view of the world. For Edgar Mitchell, it gave him such a tremendous sense of unity, unity with everyone on the planet and unity with all the stars and and planets that he could see, unity with his space capsule. Because Edgar Mitchell was so moved by this that he ended up sort of devoting his whole life to chasing down what the experience meant and what it signaled to him. It led him into researching basically consciousness because he felt he had experienced a pure consciousness on his spaceship from that view. Once he was sort of freed of the kind of the shackles of the earth and freed of all the views he'd always held before, he felt like what he really experienced was a pure state in which all the sort of cultural overlays we grow up with and accumulate over the years were just recognized as false. And then all he had was was the reality, which is that, you know, there are no Russians. <laughs> there, there are no, you know, there really, there's just us. They're and, only uh, humans. So, yeah. And so it's a funny thing. I mean, the first thing I'd say is about where we're at with space travel now especially when you hear people talking about from this point forward, it it might be sort of purely drone-based, is that we need to consider that the most important thing we've ever gotten from traveling into space is the view, right? To send human beings up there to grasp the reality of our situation may be the, the most important thing we've ever derived from the space program and why we need to continue it. I think that the reason we got away from it is very, very complicated and it involves the low boredom threshold in America. Once we'd landed on the moon and then landed on the moon again, you know what I mean? Well, they'd seen the movie before, right? So there, there's that. And then it, it, like everything else, it becomes a political football and then everything becomes so distorted by that. You know, a, a lot of people gain applause, whether they're from the left or the right, by saying, instead of worrying about spending millions of dollars to go float around in space, we need to worry about feeding people right here on Earth. There's just sort of an imperative to taking care of things here. I would just want to point out to people that by traveling into space, we better recognize what our true circumstances here are and may ultimately be better able to take care of ourselves by having had that view you know, and better able to take care of each other by having had that view. So what you're saying is we need to put Michelle Bachman on a a, a space shuttle and launch her. I'll tell you what, man, that's an experiment I could get behind. That is an experiment I can get behind. And and you know what, though? And, and I don't mean that in a purely, um, you know, sort of uh, aggressive shooter out into space way. I mean, I, I would be fascinated to see what she might change when she came back because it really has, a, a, you know, a profound effect on people. Edgar Mitchell was the only one who, or at least has been public, let's put it that way, about getting into paranormal interests afterward. But, you know, a lot of different astronauts, you know, became preachers or became simply became more spiritual or, uh, you know, started working for world peace. It's one of the most exciting um, aspects of where I think we are now, too, as a society is that this experience, which has only been the province of sort of like these very highly trained astronauts, is now going to filter down to the rest of us. The commercial space industry, if people aren't familiar with it, go check it out. Richard Branson's company, Virgin is one of the companies that's going to be sending people out into space where they'll have a view perhaps not quite as profound as Mitchell's because they won't be quite as far away. But nonetheless, you know, they'll get a chance to see what the Earth looks like from space. 
You mentioned space traveling as being a really profound, cultural, changing, mind-blowing experience. But, you know, if you've traveled a lot and you've been to many other countries and you've been seeing people all over the world, it's very similar in that way to taking off that cultural identity and, and just yeah. realizing that everybody is the same. And now yeah. with the with the Internet and, and communication being so ingrained into what it means to be a, a person living on this world, you can have that cultural, you know, unshackling just by picking up, going onto your browser and, and, and typing to somebody who lives on the other side of the world. I mean, this podcast is a prime example. I, Justin lives in, in Canada and I live in, in the other side of the United States. And yet we can have really interesting conversations and, you know, share our cultural experiences. So you're it, co-hosting a show from different countries? Yeah, we are. Internationally really co-hosted. Cool. That's really cool. That's, I, I just think that's, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean... It, we don't take enough time out of our existence, usually, I think, to appreciate something like that or to appreciate the possibilities that are in front of us. I didn't meditate today. You know, I love to meditate every day. I didn't get it done yet today. Hopefully, I'll get it done in a little bit. And one of the things the book did teach me to do was just sort of slow down. And even when something was uncomfortable for me, think to myself, well, what use can I make of this? You know, sure. Yeah, people can use their internet for more than porn. What? What? You can? <laughs> Oh, man. You know, I saw I saw a survey the other day that 50% of us, and, and what's crazy is surely none of us do it. So us three aren't in it. But 50% of Americans, um, male and female, look at porn at least once a month wow. on the Females internet. Females too? Emails as well? I don't know if it's emails, but they look at porn on the internet once a month. Wow. Well, I, I don't know about Canada. I'm in a different country here, so probably <laughs> probably a different number entirely, right? Yeah. <laughs> Or I don't know, it's colder up here, so, uh, you know, people are inside more. But anyways, we won't speculate. They're bundled up. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to say, now that NASA's going away and, and the Fermilab particle accelerator shutting down, uh, what are we going to do with all of these intelligent uh, and experienced scientists? I think that on some level, for them to be turned out of Fermilabs, right, and have to find something new to do is really exciting because who knows what they'll come up with. I mean, you know, one of the great fears for me in writing this book is that is that I would ever be perceived in some way as like anti-science, you know. I'm not I'm never calling for less science. I'm always calling for more of it. And I think that it's very exciting to think of all of those really brilliant people transitioning you know, and, and find figuring out what their next step is. They may not be excited by it, and I feel bad about that, but I, I would have a feeling that, you know, a lot of those people are going to do some really incredible things. Maybe they, they go into near-death experience research, who knows, or, or psi research. And, and one of the things I wanted to ask about was reality. You know, how do we define uh, what is real if uh, these experiences, like the, the overview effect when people go into space, gives them an actual tangible change in the way they view the world? First, we have to recognize that it's useful, you know. What, sometimes something, whether it's real or not real, is just useful, you know. Um, and, and I'll take it back to, let's say, uh, you know, you're an atheist and you're confronted with this evidence that people who engage in contemplative prayer and who imagine themselves uh, communing with God are, in fact, developing a much healthier brain this way, right? A brain that is less prone to anxiety and fear, 
and better able to focus on a task for that very reason. I think the first thing that, that somebody in that position should do is recognize that, okay, that is a scientific study. You know, this is useful. And that's the kind of stuff I get into in the chapter on Andy Newberg in the book. We've been talking a lot about keeping our minds open to new experiences and really listening to other people. We've been talking about that a lot. And yet in so many parts of our working world and the political world, what we call like the real world, it's all about imposing your will on others and the media imposing its will on us and politicians imposing their will on us. These experiences and role models of the world are so very powerful and affect our perception of reality in most facets of it. Where do you see the potential of the human race going if we all listen to one another and pursued these positive passions that we all have? You know, it's a culture in which uh, I think we'd soon all be doing shrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Terrence McKenna does lead into our podcast, so... Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, look, I, I, I think that, I mean, you're, you know, you're basically saying what would the earth be like in a utopia? I mean, I, I, I have some friends who have started something called a free school. Have you ever heard of a free school? Yeah. No. Yeah, Where we the, have one here in Vancouver. Okay, great. Where the kids set their own curriculum and even determine if they're going to study at all that day. So the kids come into school and, and sort of make the rules initially. I mean, the kids all get together and decide, well, what's against the rules. And, and uniformly, they all – bullying is like not to happen. You know, it's, I think, a really beautiful thing that kids have this instinct. It's one of the first rules they tend to make is, you know, we will not allow bullying. But uh, anyway, these kids are allowed to enter an environment with nurturing um, adults who are not there to put them through a certain set of prescribed hoops and teach to the test, who are there instead to foster their innate curiosity. And when they express interest in something, to create an opportunity for them out of the, the books and supplies and, and you know the internet that is right there for them, to create an opportunity for that kid to learn something of true interest to them. And I remember saying to the guy who was telling me this, who's really a lot more granola than me, right? And I was just like, oh, dude, you know, that all sounds beautiful. How's the kid going to get into college, right? And and, and he says, well, look, it's an accredited school. They still take, you know, the tests at certain prescribed periods. And the fact is, he goes, you know, what do you think happens to a kid when they're 13 and they start to think about what their future is? They'll say at some point, hey, you know, I want to go to college. How do I do that? You know, or they had a conversation with their parents where their parents said, you know, you thought about what you're going to study in college. And so they come in one day to the free school and they say, well, you know, what do I what do I do to get into college? And the next thing you know, they're now all about teaching themselves with the help of the, you know, the adult that's there how to get into college, how to pass the tests they're going to need to get in, this sort of thing. And and so I leapt to this because when you ask this question, because I think that that's one way, right, we can actually start to achieve that kind of society. Think for a second, if you go all the way back to your childhood, if you had been given that kind of freedom, what might you be doing today? You know, I mean, for anyone listening, like, what might you be doing today as opposed to what you're doing now? Why would I want to go to college if I've just been learning everything I've ever wanted to know through my my non-college years? And why would I want to go back to a boxy education system again? I mean, because you've learned along the way that a college degree is important and valuable, and you've learned along the way that higher education would be a cool thing to get. So, I mean, maybe there'll be free, I don't know, free universities 
at some point where kids teach themselves, you know, the specialties uh, as well as the, you know, the the beginning stuff. I don't know. Um, yeah, you need to have some kind of graduate level free school, like like you're just talking about. You'd have to have that kind of thing to move into. I think. I, I will tell you, I met some people who've gone through the free school system who like went to places like Harvard and stuff like that. They loved every second of it. They were better prepared for it than their classmates because they had to decide what they were going to do with their days all the time. And you know that, you know, in college, obviously, there's a lot more freedom, a lot more freedom to screw up. And um, so they tend to be more disciplined. They knew what they wanted. And they also immediately recognized that what's happening in a college classroom, just like what was happening in a high school classroom, is a sort of game. They have that outsider's perspective on it. They're not caught up in the grade. They just realize that, well, okay, there are certain things I'm going to need to do to get the desired result. So my understanding of it anyway is it's not that kids who go to, say, like the Sudbury School in Massachusetts, very famous free school, find themselves disillusioned uh, and disheartened when they get to college. Now they just rock it. Cool. And I would think that they would want to go to college perhaps more than the people than a lot of the people who are already there who are maybe just there because, well, you know, it's the next thing you do. The people who've gone right. through the free schools have thought about it and they're like, yes, I want to go to college because. Yeah, of they reasons. discovered their passion along the right. way. That's that's really cool. All right. Well, uh, it, it's been really great speaking with you today, but we can't let you get away without talking about ghosts. And we, we talked a lot of, uh, about a lot of really grand topics today, some, some really large questions. And you had a family ghost story. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I grew up with it uh, as a kid. I was about six years old when it happened. And so the memories I have it are pretty fragmentary. And so I actually had to go back and interview family members and try and compare that with you know my own memories of, of what occurred. But we would hear a um, really loud, thumping, booming sort of sound only in the middle of the night you know only at night only in the middle of the night when we we're all asleep and it would uh wake us up out of bed and it would sound to my brother and i on one side of the, the house in our bedroom like it was coming from the roof over our heads my sisters across the way we didn't share any adjoining walls thought it was coming from up in the walls uh, generally speaking of their room and we could never quite pinpoint it and my my parents who slept downstairs they would hear it as well uh, and it would wake them up. That's how loud it was. And, you know, their first inclination, of course, was that this had to be sort of a, um, you know, like a water hammer, a plumbing problem, or the house settling. But this noise would go on for tens of minutes. It would go on for a long time. It would go away and come back in the night. And it just didn't fit with any plumbing problem or the house settling. My sisters complained of, of worse things than than just the, the banging. They complained that the covers were pulled from their beds. They said they saw an old woman um, walk uh, through their room and out a closed door. So very dramatic. My parents just focused on the sound, right? And I asked my dad about that later. I remember saying to him, hey, dad, you know, did you not believe the girls, you know, or, or what? And he said, well, it's not that. He said, it's just that, you know, we we didn't really want to, we, we hadn't experienced that stuff ourselves. So it was easy for us to kind of just set it aside. And because all they had heard was the noise, right? And the other piece of it was who wants to think that their house is haunted? And I found this really telling because, you know, when I did a lot of ghost hunting for the book, I certainly came across some people who who were very vested and emotionally attached to the idea that their house was haunted. But the majority of people weren't. The majority of people just wanted to know what was going on in their house. So anyway, back to that story. The noise went on for many months. My parents became tired of getting woken up out of bed. They'd taken all the steps they could, looked into the plumbing. They'd tried to recreate the sound and couldn't. So finally, we were at that point practicing Catholics. And my dad went to the 
family priest and told him what was happening. And the family priest said he'd come over and bless the house, which is a, a kind of a blessing ceremony that Catholics do when they even first move into a place. So he comes over and he blesses the house. And I'll never forget this. He said, you know, so long, Jerry. I'm sure everything will be fine you know, when he was done. And actually things were worse that night. Wow. The noise went on longer and louder than ever. And for the first time, the sound really moved and assumed a kind of a definable location. We were all really scared, the kids. So we'd run downstairs to where our parents were and our parents were awake and they were actually thinking of leaving the house for the night when the noise hit at the top of the stairs and then came down one step at a time. Very, very, look, I get it, right? This is ridiculous. This is a ridiculous story, but it came down one step step at a time and then it hit the uh, the landing with the biggest boom imaginable you could feel the floor shake and that was it we never heard it again so i get on one level that this is you know this is sort of story people hear it sounds outlandish it sounds like something from a movie um although of course they'd have to pump it up for the movies and of course they'd have to pump it up coming this halloween one man has a family ghost story parents were awake and they were actually thinking of leaving the house for the night when the noise hit at the top of the stairs. Noises in his house were so terrifying his whole family experienced it. You are quite right. There is something here. I can feel it. A sort of a presence. A soul. Not quite a friend. I just wish that it would leave me alone. One Catholic priest can go all the way to expelling the ghost and killing the ghost, even if it is already dead. Blesses the house, and I'll never forget this. He said, you know, so long, Jerry. I'm sure everything will be fine. It is done. And actually, things were worse than came down one step at a time, and then it hit the, uh, the landing with the biggest boom imaginable. You could feel the floor shake, and that was it. This fall, all noises in your house will be terrifying. Um, but still, you know, really outlandish. Yet, I love and trust the people who shared their version of the story with me. I have memories of it myself. And so the question I had entering into the book was, well, what am I supposed to do with it? You know, like, what do I do with this old family story? And, and the first thing I, I figured I'd ought to do is being a reporter and a guy who tells stories for a living is that whatever the stigma involved with this is, I should tell the story because it's a good story. It and, sounds yeah. like a great story. It would be yeah. very scary to be living in that house and have these poundings going on all the time. Did it feel like to you that these are very, very, this is something that was very real to you at the moment? Did you feel like you were going crazy? I mean, what you, all your family heard it also. So it's not like something you can explain away. Yeah, nobody felt like they were going crazy. Um, my parents were very concerned about telling people outside the family. And so we were supposed to keep a lid on it. Um, of course, you know, we were kids, so everybody told their best friend, right? And But no, nobody felt like, hey, are we nuts? For, for precisely the reason you said, everybody was experiencing it together. And the, I think the takeaway for me that, that I'd like people to understand is that their response to this was not to say immediately, oh, we have a ghost. 
their response was at first to just sort of ignore it and hope it would stop and then to begin investigating it with an eye toward mundane explanations, pipes, you know, something going on in the house. And I think that that the other piece of this, right, in addition to telling the story, the other thing I determined to do, right, in order to make use of it is to just use it as a, a symbol of the fact that we don't know everything, right, that we have beliefs about how the world works, but we haven't truly defined sort of the parameters of reality as yet. And that's what I've used this story to do for me. I put a spell on you. That's the end of our interview with Steve Volk on flash mobs, anger that arises in response to your worldview being challenged, trying to hold multiple possibilities in your mind. You know, do you even need belief? What it's like to talk to UFO believers? Can we even inject lucid dreaming into the American dream? What do you think, Seth? Can we do it? Some heavy stuff there, Justin. I would love to inject a lucid dream anywhere I possibly can into the society that we live in. I really liked what we talked about with the two possibilities, holding two possibilities in your head at the same time because faith is such a huge belief system that it takes dreaming to like a whole new level. What do you think about the role of belief in a lot of the topics that we talk about? Because in so many ways, the modern economic system that we live in requires a leap of faith too. And it is just a belief system all the same. But also we talk to a lot of people that really truly believe that the world economic system is coming down. And yes, they have a lot of research and a lot of facts to back that up. And I got to say, I believe them myself quite a bit. But how much of it is a belief? You know, how much of a leap of a faith do you have to take to say that our entire way of life is in the process of changing dramatically? You know, Justin, we talk a lot about beliefs in this episode and we talk about, you know, religious beliefs and we talk about economic beliefs and just the the fact that beliefs are are very much a part of being human. And to believe in something, you have to take that extra little leap into nowhere because a lot of belief relies on the fact that you just know it to be true. You, you don't always have to have the facts always. You just know that the facts, that the thing that you're believing in is true. And as I mentioned in the podcast, a lot of times when you're having a rational conversation with somebody, they bring up the word believe or I believe this to be true. The rational conversation can just end and it's no longer a debate. It's no longer something that it's two-sided. It's I believe this. So therefore, everything you say is wrong. I think that can be sometimes detrimental to a, a conversation and to keeping an open mind, which is very, very essential moving forward into this unpredictable time that we're, we're coming into. And all the way back in episode nine with Helena Norberg-Hodge, she mentioned that what we really need to do is start writing letters and having conversations with the people around us about these important topics. Yet it's so hard. You know, how do you bring up that I want to 
talk to you about the possibility of bank runs, or I want to talk to you about the possibility of there being a very serious issue in in shortages and supplies, and so I want to stockpile resources and build that community around it. And it's kind of a hard topic to breach, a topic that is a lot like talking to someone about UFOs or talking to someone about, uh, you know, a ghost story that you might have in your history, because the reality is that there's quite a bit of a possibility of something like that happening in our near future, but people's eyes can glaze over and they can face that same kind of anger that comes when their worldview and their belief system is challenged because they've lived in a world where all of these supply chains worked and all of these systems work so well, they can't even imagine something else. For sure, for sure. People in our parents' generation, baby boomers for sure, and you know, even you know, generation Xers who have lived that dream, who have had houses, who have bought into the to the paradigm that that is what the mainstream media preaches that you are supposed to get that house and you are supposed to go to your 4.5 years of college and you're supposed to have those 2.5 kids those ideals and those paradigms are extremely hard to break out of because they are what people's lives are made up of and when you change those belief structures and those ideas that what your life is supposed to mean it can leave people just floating it can leave people wondering what they're supposed to be doing in their lives and that is a very scary thing for people especially those who have latched on so strongly to those those ideologies that our culture preaches and it's very difficult to take yourself out of that paradigm and to move yourself into a new one and we talked a lot in this episode about scary things we spoke with quite a few of the people who will be featured on upcoming interviews about you know scary things that, that they think about like richard heinberg and gwendolyn hallsmith and bernard Leter and and richard heinberg said he can't imagine anything scarier than the bush administration dick cheney that's a monster in himself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, bank runs and currency collapse are scary things. But so much of the reason why we do this podcast is we want people to know that there are alternative ways of organizing society available. And there's a lot of really intelligent people doing incredible things in the world that are having positive impacts. And so that's part of the message of the podcast is to, is to turn that into a positive thing. But so much of our conversation today with Steve was about the main theme of the podcast, which is extra environmentalism. You know, we talked about travel. We talked about launching Michelle Bachman into space and seeing what happened to her. And and not in a mean way, like literally to see what if she would have the same overview effect that a lot of the astronauts did that caused them to totally change from being scientists and engineers wholly focused on like a Newtonian world paradigm into seeing some kind of grander picture for human the human species and reality. Like Edgar Mitchell, it changed his whole life and suddenly he started the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And if you've read any Dan Brown books or the most recent Dan Brown book, you know, the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the overview effect being able to see our whole world like that is really an incredible thing because it breaks down borders it, it makes you realize that we are a species here on this planet and we're fighting hard to make it along with a lot of other species so that's that's very true justin sending somebody into space is very very much like traveling to a different culture it's like trying on a different cultural identity and for a lot of our politicians i think that would benefit them in a large, large amount. I mean, sending sending Michelle Bachman to a third world country is pretty much like sending her into space in a lot of ways. She would she would experience the different culture and she would understand what it's like to live in a world that's not the one that she has adopted seven children in and you know the, the extremely affluent world that she comes from now for all the, the political candidates that we, we see they all come from wealth and they all come from places that are above what it what most of the people in the united states live in and to put them into a situation where they would have to understand 
what it means to be part of this middle lower class life that most people in this world live in would give them a huge perspective on what they could do in this country and the, the potential that they have to change the world in so many positive ways. Yeah, I, I think that maybe instead of making Obama's birth certificate into such a big deal, we should see everyone in the Tea Party's passports. And then uh, once we get that official document, then we'll know if we can vote for them or not, right? That's true, yeah. 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 So show us your passports. <laughs> show us your passport. <laughs> if you have to have at least 10 countries that you've traveled in and stayed at least six months in one of them. Yeah, and then you and then you can run for president. And you, you couldn't have been on a tour. You had to figure it out on your own. Yeah, you have to figure it out without somebody telling you where to go and what to see yeah and you can't have more than you know fifty thousand dollars in the bank and speaking of people who don't have more than fifty thousand dollars in the bank (laughs) (laughs) very exciting time to be young and poor and full of hope and excitement and you know being on that that cutting edge of what it means to be a citizen of the world. We've been talking so much about the internet and about how it connects everybody together in such an exciting new way. And we've seen what it means to be part of that internet generation where you can live broadcast yourself to the whole entire world and show what's happening to everybody at the exact moment that it's happening. And we've seen that on Wall Street. We've seen that in so many ways and how it connects us and what it means to be a part of that. It's it's something that's brand new and it's very exciting to be a part of. Absolutely. Speaking of something that's exciting to be a part of, it's all of our incredible listener feedback that we've been getting. All of you leaving comments on the blog. So many great comments on the blog. We can't even dive into all of them. But we got some emails recently. One from Michael, who, who's in Europe, and he sent us a message saying that he's a big fan. And we asked our listeners to tell us what they're eating. And he said that he's part of the Extra Alliance. It's all about the paleo ancestral health movement. And it's something that I don't know a lot about. So thanks for sending it along, Michael. And it's a topic I've been wanting to do a show on uh, in the future. So thanks for suggesting a few people to, to speak to. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have an interview. Maybe we'll do a show on ancestral health and the uh, paleo uh, dieting. So that would yeah. be pretty cool. Yeah. We also heard from Trevor. He says that he's very impressed with our production quality and he has a radio background so he knows what he's talking about. And he also found us on Reddit, which uh, you also can find us on Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash collapse. And we think we have, what, like 16 upvotes right now? So we're you know, rocking it out. Yeah, I was so surprised to see all the traffic that was coming into our website from Reddit a few days ago. So thanks to whoever it was out there that posted us on Reddit and got us upvoted. Also, thanks to uh, the Ninja Turtle, who left a review for us on iTunes, which is really awesome, saying that he loves the show. And if more of you want to go on iTunes and leave reviews, that's a great way to get people who are looking for new podcasts through the iTunes store to uh, check it out, to give us a listen and, uh, you know, expose expose their their brain to whatever it is that we're saying. Thank you to all the people who have gone onto our Facebook and and liked us there. And thanks to KMO for giving us a shout out, telling us he is headed to the International Conference on Sustainability, Transition, and Culture Change, giving a presentation along with a ton of other awesome presenters. Previous presenters have included people like Richard Heinberg, who will be on our show, and Joseph Tainer, who's also going to be on our show. And so he's giving a presentation there. And that is November the 10th through November the 14th at the Shanty Creek Resorts in Bel Air, Michigan. So if you're in the area, 
go by and check it out and you'll hear a lot about the themes and topics we cover on our show. And we also have an interview we've recorded with KMO that's going to be coming up here in the next few weeks. And if you would like to uh, reach us and talk to us, you can find us on our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just type in Extra Environmentalist and we will pop right up. You can follow us on Twitter, which is X Environmental. How do people leave voice messages for us, Justin? They can go online, use their Skype, and call the Extra Environmentalist. Leave us a voicemail that way. Or they can give us a call on our voicemail number, which I'm sure you guys are tired of hearing, so I won't repeat it. Thanks again for everyone who gives us feedback. It really makes the show something truly special to be a part of and to know that all you guys are out there listening and leaving comments on our Facebook page. So we're at 170 likes now. So get your friends to like us, recommend it to your friends. It's a great way to take part in all the links that we're sharing and all the discussions that are going on between all of our listeners. That's very true, Justin. And everybody in the uh, British Columbia, Vancouver area should tune into our first initial extra environmentalist broadcast, which will be happening when, Justin? It'll be happening next Wednesday on CITR 101.9 FM. Excellent. So everybody who is, you know, taking their lunch break should tune in to the Extra Environmentalist and listen to Justin and I's lilting tones coming to you not from your podcasting device, but from your radio. That's right. So that's enough horrifying news for today. So have a happy Halloween. (laughs) Happy Halloween. If I were to randomly choose, and don't worry, I shan't, five of you to come up here and each one of you would have 40 seconds to explain to the rest of us what an atom is, it would be preposterous. None of us know. I doubt there's a person in this room who can give an account of the atom that tallies with the quote-unquote orthodox description of the atom. So. There is a curious fuzziness about the most mundane parts of reality when we really attempt to magnify and understand them in the clear light of consciousness. How much more ambiguity there is then, naturally, attendant upon the examination of any kind of phenomena which are rare or tend to be fringy. So it isn't a matter of achieving consensus. We can't even achieve consensus about what constitutes a decent souffle. So this this passionate desire to drag us all under the umbrella of a single explanation is, I think, uh, missing the point. This is Halloween. This is Halloween.
everybody make a scene, trick or treat. Tell the neighbors on the diaphragm. This is Everybody scream. This time of Halloween. I am the one hiding under your bed. Teeth ground sharp and eyes glowing red. I am the one hiding under your stairs. Fingers like snakes and spiders in my hair. Next time on the Extra Environmentalist. What's going through the minds of people like Ben Bernanke, I hesitate to speculate, but I genuinely think that these people do not really understand what's going on. They understand a lot of the superficial aspects of the economic crash itself, the financial problems of the banks and of uh, you know Greece and the, the other sovereign debt default nations in, in Europe, but, but they don't understand the deeper systemic crises of, of resource depletion, the energy uh, picture, and, uh, and the, the worsening impacts from climate change. They hear about these things from time to time, but they haven't really internalized those factors. Live from Cupertino, California, at Infinity Loop Drive, it's the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference 2012. Hello and welcome to the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference 2012. This is a very important year in the history of this species, and because of that, we have a very, very special developer conference, unlike anything you've ever seen before. You were perhaps wondering how Apple would change as a company. It's, it's becoming a different kind of company, but really, we're just going back to our roots. And to take us back to our roots, we're introducing a very special guest onto the stage today. It's the host of popular XPR radio show, Mama Vanderschmidt, the host of Talk of the Haitian. Uh, thank you, uh, Mama Vanderschmidt. Oh, hello, hello, welcome, hello, hello, everybody. Nice to see you, nice to see you. Apple has given me the privilege of today contacting Steve Jobs' ghost. That is right, everybody. I will today attempt to not only channel, but put Steve Jobs' ghost up onto video screen so everybody can see Steve. We will now begin. He is coming! He is coming! He is coming! Steve! Hello! Hello, everyone. I heard you had a jobs crisis. That is right. That is right, Steve. That is why you are here. You are here to help us through this very, very difficult time in human history. Tell us. Tell us, Steve, what have you brought us from beyond? Apple was always founded as a revolutionary company, taking us back to our roots. Let's watch one of the ads that started Apple onto its track today. With this ad, 
we were able to establish ourselves as a revolutionary company. The computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. And now that the global revolution is taking place, we're rolling out a new product line that can help revolutionaries not only use amazingly designed devices, but also take advantage of this historic moment. Using all of Apple's amazing design principles, we not only have taken the thinness and the lightness of the iPad, but we've incorporated it onto body armor so that you can absorb blows from violent riot troopers. Introducing the new iPadding 2.0. The iPadding 2.0 has a new colors app that will allow you to automatically change the color with just the touch of a hand, the swipe of a finger. Hi, I'm Bob. I downloaded Punch and Kick app and it helps me so much. I was out on uh, Occupy and Wall Street the other day and these cops came down with their, their uh, punch and their kicking and I just flipped on my, my iPadding and man, it just blocked those pads so great. I didn't even feel a thing. As you can see, a lot of other body armor doesn't have the same kind of attention to design that Apple provides. But we're not just stopping at defense. Apple's all about going on the offensive. And that's why we're rolling out the iMolotov. Using Apple's commitment to the environment, it's the first Molotov cocktail in the world that's reusable. Cutting material waste that's blown up in Molotovs around the world using Apple's commitment to green design. And we're not stopping there. There's the iMolotov Nano, which allows you to clip it to your belt for easy access. The iMolotov Nano includes a miniature camera and Wi-Fi connections, so that way you can get live video feeds from every iMolotov Nano in the world. Pulling out new apps for the App Store. Introducing Hunger Strike. With a simple Nike Plus add-on, any iPod, Touch, or iPhone can count your calories as you sit striking. Tweet out to all your friends how long you've been striking and post information to your Facebook wall saying what you're striking for. It's an incredible tool for revolutionaries around the world. Let's check out how it actually works. I've been hunger striking for about, oh, what, 15 days now? <coughs> I'm so, so hungry, but... Thanks to Apple's new hunger striking app, not only can I see how many days I've been hunger striking, but I can hear from all my friends how they support me in my hunger strike. Man, do I feel loved. So as you can see, revolutionaries around the world can benefit from our amazing Apple App Store team. But it doesn't stop there. Using our new iLoot app, Amazon.com's database of product information is synchronized with stores nearby. You can find the lightest items to loot all around you and share pictures of the items you've just looted with your friends. Yeah, I was uh, walking down the street the other day and uh, there were a bunch of kids who just ran in the neighborhood and started breaking windows. I was like, yeah, this is my time to riot. So I pulled up Apple's iLoot app from the app store and uh, found the lightest items nearby. It was incredible.
check out all the stuff I got. I got this fur coat. I got a television that's little. It'll fit in my living room for my little girl. She's been wanting something to watch these days. And I also got this Prada bag. It's incredible. But it's not to say that we want to leave out an important part of our community. And that's the law enforcement community. Last year, Apple introduced the iCloud to huge success. But now, we're rolling out an iCloud you can use in your hands. Apple's iCloud can spray anything you want in someone else's eye. Completely customizable through an online app store. It reconfigures the atoms inside the iCloud to spray whatever it is you want. Not only am I able to spray the hairspray in my hair right now, but I can flip open the, uh, the iCloud app and I can change it over to some pepper spray and spray in the eye of my, my cheating ex-boyfriend who just told me that he cheated on me with my best friend Susie. Can you believe that guy? But everything I've been designing doesn't stop there. As it turns out... <gasps> oh, Steve. Oh, Steve. Oh, it looks like we have lost Steve. But this was a very successful keynote anyway. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Mama Vanderschmidt. It's been great to have you, and we'll look forward to hearing more of you on your weekly radio show, Talk of the Haitian. The products are available in the lobby, and you can get your preview CDs of OS 10.8 Keyboard Cat as you leave the room. Thank you.